On the show today, Stefan Beiten, entrepreneur, lawyer, film producer, and public speaker. And with us is also my co-host, Rainier Indal, founder and managing partner of Summa Equity. So today we'll talk about conscious leadership. So Stefan, first, a big warm welcome to you to the show. Thank you. So Stefan, you are based in Berlin and Amsterdam, and you have literally three instruments in your hands to create value. The first one is your investment holding, Argo Ventures, where you've founded and co-founded more than 20 companies on two continents. And then you have your company, Greenlight Media, where you have produced global classics such as Deep Blue and Planet Earth. And you've influenced more than 1 billion people on how they perceive sustainability and the role of humans on our planet. And then you have the Argonauts, which is your global community for courageous innovators, executives and entrepreneurs where you'd like to inspire them as change makers to find their own meaning. But let's kick off by talking about something that I know that you believe in very much, which is conscious leadership. So how would you define that and explain what that means to you? This is a good question because the word consciousness is, especially for, for someone like me who comes from a very transactional world, always puts oneself very quickly in kind of an esoteric corner, but it actually has something very, very tangible. I would consider it to be in the time of disruption and continuous expansion of complexity. It's the name of the game. And what does it mean? It's best to bring a practical example. Imagine your iPhone. It has, over the last 15, 16 years now, constantly upgraded the hardware, constantly upgraded the apps, but imagine it would still run on the operating system 1.0. That is what we're doing as humans. We constantly upgrading all of the world that we're living, constantly upgrading, making more complex the challenges that we're faced with. But we're not upgrading our ability to find new solutions. For that, we need to upgrade our consciousness. And that is really what that means. It's our operating system. That's how we operate, how we see and understand the world. So, but how do we get there? We've been thrown, literally, in the 17th century into a certain operating system, which is the transactional mechanistic mindset. Historically speaking, after the religious wars in the, in the, in the 17th century, I'm just going to take two of the main leaders as examples, Thomas Hobbes and René Descartes, basically came up with a solution saying, we need an absolute state and we need simply using our cognitive intelligence, everything else we ignore. That will bring us the security that we need in order to rebuild the world and rebuild. I mean, we're talking disruption today. Just imagine that time 50% of the population of Middle Europe was disseminated. And then came the Black Plague. So that is disruption. So that created the base for the highly successful technological world that we live in. I mean, we literally can solve probably any problem there possibly is we can solve with our cognitive intelligence. But in using and adding to it our emotional and spiritual intelligence, we're kind of toddlers. And we're falling back behind the times that we were at in the times of the ancient Greeks, which were already there. I was thinking about, uh, Stefan, somewhere you wrote, I think it was on LinkedIn or somewhere I read, that your business philosophy follows Peter Drucker's simple wisdom, which is culture eats uh, strategy for breakfast. And your life philosophy is to become the awareness behind my thoughts and feelings. And I think probably that life philosophy of yours a little bit expresses what it means to become a conscious leader, right? To understand our place in the whole system. Absolutely. And it goes basically back uh, again to the ancient Greeks. So I'm 
as a historian, I love ancient Greek mythology and philosophy, which were basically merging into a sociological construct that ancient Greece was. And at the core of it was the imperative of the, the god Apollo inscribed at the entrance of the Apollo Temple in Delphi. It basically said, Kodophi Seoton, which is the today's know thyself. Or in more normal language, human, find out what it means to be human, but don't dare to become God because then we're going to kick you. And that's exactly also the warning. And we have very various tragedies that uh, show exactly what happens when we think we can be even semi-gods, which is exactly what we're doing now. We think we can be semi-gods, creating the homo deus. So finding out what it means to be truly human, what it means to be truly alive, what makes you truly alive. So the concept of aliveness, that is uh, what I mean by saying, be the awareness behind the, the feelings and uh, especially my interpretations of reality, which is usually an interpretation, not a fact. So Stefan, out of curiosity, what propelled you into conscious leadership? When did you become conscious and what triggered that? It was actually triggered off at the height of my financial success, which was in the summer of 2008. Uh, I was basically a billionaire on paper until Lehman hit, then not so much. Then was back to, I think, minus 50 million. And I had to rebuild and reinvent. And part of the reinvention process was basically a dinner that I had with Tony Robbins. I had no idea who the guy is. At that time, for me, a coach was a basketball. And I was just invited to dinner with him through a friend. So after asking everybody what everybody does, I just said, dot, 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 dot. So he said, so you're successful. Yeah. And are you fulfilled? And I thought, huh, is there a difference between the two? I had no idea. So my transactional mindset, I noticed from that moment on, and thanks to Tony, who literally gave me one of his famous interventions right there, silencing 50 people in the in the restaurant, even the cook stopped cooking. I mean, if you've seen it, two meters six guy, and when he speaks, everyone else is quiet. And I felt like the six-year-old who didn't do his homework and <laughs> having to report to the director. So in essence, it became clear to me, oh, there's a huge, huge blind spot. And I said, dude, I don't know really know what you do, but sign me up for it. And that was the start. First, and I must give it to Tony, he is the perfect introduction to that journey but it's an introduction. And then you go on individual paths and very tough paths because uh, what I mentioned was I had to reinvent myself and that took me almost five years, basically having to rebuild everything from scratch. And that at least makes you humble. <laughs> That's the first step. <laughs> so human, find out what it means to be human. Yeah, I felt very human. <laughs> definitely not like the master of the universe uh, syndrome that I definitely fell into before 2008. And that makes you become aware of your blind spots. That makes you become vulnerable, makes you become to finally listen, finally not make statements all the time, but ask questions, connect not just with the mind, but with the heart. And I learned that there's a whole new language out there that I had no idea and the whole operating system guided by a language that I had to learn. And uh, that wasn't has been my journey ever since to learn that language. That's interesting. And this is at the same time when you're working on the Planet Earth movie. So were those incidents connected? Absolutely. The, the premiere of Planet Earth was, uh, 2008 was the big year. But what truly happened to us, what no one expected, we thought this is just a, this is a great project. But what it truly meant, we noticed, especially with the premieres of the movie, that we had an open stadiums and opening city squares all over the world. And when the movie ended, especially the one in San Sebastian where it premiered, 
there was a quietness in the room with 4,000 people. And you notice that the chemistry, literally the DNA, the atmosphere has changed. And then a different conversation started. You felt there was a coherence, a flow with all the people that all of a sudden seemed to have received a different lens on how they saw the world and themselves in it. And that happened again and again. And then we started looking into it and wondered, what is happening here? And we noticed that this happens all around the world. I was somewhere in the Andes at 3,000 meter high, and Fly Earth was playing in the local bar at a pretty bad old TV, but the whole bar was quite a looked at. It's the same effect. So we wonder, what is it? And uh, together with BBC, actually, we started to re-engineer what was the magic. And again, it's we're a conversational species, and we are a species that need to connect. And both core operational ingredients of us humans seem to be have been triggered in the same way, in the same resonating way, independent of culture, age, geography. I definitely did something to, uh, with me as well when I saw it. Um, this was the period after the financial crisis and when the focus was also on our planet. And I started questioning everything I'd learned and how capitalism was working and all the analysis we were creating. So it was definitely a kickstart on, on the journey which led me to focus on sustainability and, uh, and impact. So the movie and, and the wave that it triggered definitely had, uh, have had a big impact. Just curious, what, what did the film do to you? Did it change you or had you changed before? I definitely haven't changed before. <laughs> and unlike you, it took that kick in the butt that I had with, in addition to the crisis until I could finally connect the dots that actually the two had to do something to one another. And I think the best quote that I could give you is that I heard, and I don't remember who, who said it, but it was beautiful, said, we are all born into someone else's narrative. And I noticed I was born into the narrative that served my parents very, very well. And I just copied without question. And I also came ac across Robert Keating's work from, from Harvard, the adult development theory and, and spiral dynamics, et cetera. And I saw that he had exactly the model that I felt. It's 75% it's of the population actually never questions their narrative and doesn't usually like I was, didn't even notice that there is such a thing. Despite having studied history and philosophy, by the way, which is a perfect example of difference between theory and practice, especially when it comes to do oneself. And then I said, oh, okay, I had this chasm, what he calls it. You can call it spiritually speaking an awakening moment, definitely. I call it in kick of the ass. And that allowed the combination of falling from cloud seven and having this immense success in reaching a billion people the conversation says, okay, what does it actually tell me? What kind of medicine do I have to drink myself? And that allowed me to go forward. And quite honestly, there was a third element to it. I entered YPO in, in 2008, and they had at the core a format called Forum, which is basically eight of these usually pretty alpha male get together, and they have the conversations that they usually don't have, that the normal societal script and the business script does not provide for. And you have the 5% conversation, usually the conversation that you avoid, the conversations that are the blind spot conversations. And it took me easily a year to actually understand what that was. And until I got it, I said, okay, these are the conversations that truly matter. And so those three events, kicking the butt, seeing what effect it has on people globally through that movie, plus understanding that there's much more of the narrative that I thought was a given that I had to create that myself. And given the vehicle, which was Forum, to finding that conversation, 
or the true finding that the new narrative of mine that was really the start of the journey. And fueled by Tony's approach. Stefan, you've built and worked with many companies. And I'm just wondering, what kind of meta values have you found that are universally important during that journey? First of all, and I have to give it to the Greeks, for me, it is awareness. The awareness that correlates with one of the core teachings of yoga, it is that life happens in the space between, in the space where we have an impulse, which is energy motion, which is the emotion, which is physiological. And then that turns into a feeling, which is already an interpretation of that emotion. And that's little space between. We as humans have the power to basically fill that space. For that, we need to have awareness that we actually just having an impulse that usually comes from somewhere and that our brain doesn't distort, delete, generalize. So that awareness allows us then to go to the next step, the next, for me, meta value that I found in studying, I stopped counting it, 50 or 60 uh, mysteries, religions, philosophies worldwide. But they all come to the same thing after awareness. Are you responsible? In the English word of the sense of the meaning of the word, great word word, can you respond to that impulse with your own narrative? And are you willing to accept full responsibility for your response? And then it goes to the deeper state, which is empathy. And then it goes back to the Greeks, who have a wonderful wider meaning of empathy, which means it starts with yourself before you can go to the other. But mostly, are you capable of creating a third space? of empathy means that independent of who they, you are or the other person is, can you enter into that third space where you basically resonate with one another? And there's a beautiful scene for that in the Iliad by Omer where Priam, king of Troy, after the son Hector was slaughtered by Achilles, sneaks into the camp, the Greeks, and begs Achilles to hand over his body of his son. And they created that third space and mourned together for coming from independent places. So the father of can mourn together with the murder of his son. And that would not be possible if you would just have empathy for one another. You need to create a third space and both to enter from different spaces, but into a resonance space. So that is the higher or the wider uh, explanation and definition of the word empathy. And together, they're pretty simple. And they have this great acronym R, which means that it's not about I am, kind of the transactional dopamine-driven meaning of the word or mindset, to the transformational we are mindset. And you created the community, the Argonauts. So uh, curious to hear a little bit about that and how you embed conscious leadership and these meta-values into that. There's a reason why we're called the Argonauts. And... It's not only one of the founding myths of our culture, it is for the first time embedded into a myth, the idea of going from the me to the we. It's the idea of assembling heroes, uh, single heroes that are at the peak of their success and now bring them into this third resonant space to create a we group of heroes. And that it happens by going on a ship and, well, at that time, you could not only say you had to row. And you can only roll and make a ship move of that size when you all are in resonance with them. And that makes the ship fast enough to then survive all the adventures and all the all the problems, uh, uh, all the challenges that the gods throw at you as your, on your voyage to finally find the golden fleece, the metaphorical fulfillment. So that, there we have it. It's, it's the idea of the me hero becomes a we hero to get from success to fulfillment. That's why we're called the Argonauts. And that is the journey of expanding your consciousness that we embed in the Argonauts based on the meta values that are just 
So Stefan, I know that all of us, all three of us here, we believe in what you would call the collective intelligence, but also in, in self-leadership and transparency and so on in organizations. However, it is a difficult task. And I know that Rainier, you've been questioning the how on all of these things very much over your course of your journey. So Stefan, what is your experience when it comes to, for example, creating you know, an organization that is truly self-led and transparent and conscious? It's a difficult one. We are hardwired to the fear-based, reactive mind. So by definition, we're transactional or from a neurobiological point of view, dopamine-driven, testosterone-driven. It's the founding twins of neurobiological reward receptors. And in order to get to serotonin and then oxytocin, we have to develop a completely different environment, a space where we can have different conversations than just interacting with content, but then interacting together through context. And that changes the conversation. And that conversation cannot happen in the normal transaction space. For that, you need a space of absolute trust of not advice giving, of listening with the heart, and of being able and willing to share vulnerably. Hence, it needs to be a space of absolute psychological safety. And to embed that in a modern organization, that is a new thing. It is what Forum and YPO does, but that's outside of Forum organization. And to include that into an organization is precisely the task of the Argonauts, to provide that space of psychological safety, kind of a meaning-making layer in the organization, next to the administrative layer, the money-making layer, the production layer, whatever layers there are, we've figured that out. We have not figured out the meaning-making. And now, since most institutions, especially the churches that used to be places for that, spaces for that, are basically losing, say, they call it the grip on society or the credibility, but whatever it is, it's dissolving as the trustworthy space to find that meaning. I believe, especially for-profit organizations, are now the space to provide that meaning-making. And in the Argonauts, you go through some modules for an organization to create this. And uh, how many have gone through it? And how many can you be proud of that you have been able to change? The modules that we're working with, it actually goes by a very sequential steps. First of all, it's all about finding the 7% in a company that are in tune with that world, that world of awareness, of responsibility of empathy, of understanding, and wanting to go on a journey. So how to find those rock stars of your conscious culture? That is the biggest task uh, that most HR departments have troubles finding and then solving. So we developed a psychological assessment that allows us to precisely find that special group of future leaders. Um, so step one is to let in cooperation with HR and with the CEO of the company go through the team that they selected and then finally let them take our assessment and find out which fit the profile for the trust circle journey. That is step one. So they take the assessment. After they took the assessment, we put them together in cohorts of six to eight. And they go through a masterclass for six weeks, which is not just a digital program. It is virtual in groups and professionally facilitated for six weeks. And after that is completed, we know precisely who will become pioneers, the champions 
of the trust circle process within the company. That is then step three. And then they reform, we put together, again, in cooperation directly with HR, the groups that fit the best. And one component is very important. It is all about breaking up the silos that any organization has. So we put into these cords of six to eight into the trust circle groups, people of various departments, usually not more than two hierarchy levels, but as from many departments as possible. So all of a sudden, they talk to one another across departments or even across countries, sectors, etc., depending on the size of the organization. So first step, assessment. Second step, masterclass. Third step, cross-circle journey. And after a year, they go to the fourth step. They become entrepreneurs and are becoming champions of their own circles and moderators of their own circles. So they go through that collective journey first, and then they become internal practitioners, widening the usage of and the introduction of that trust circle journey in the organization. And within literally 12 to 18 months, you have a whole inner community that speaks a completely different language that connects and becomes a collective and collaborative superpower. So great. So it means that, as you say, in 12, 18 months, they become, in that sense, independent and extremely much more power-filled as an organization. Yes. And not only independent, after 18 months, they start to become interdependent. That's the fascinating thing because the groups interact with one another. They're cross-departmental. And that is really the dream of modern management, that you, thou, can basically be the super order and the empathetic leader of the teams that now take over leadership, ownership, and accountability for the goals and not just waiting dependently on someone else. So they go through the whole process of going from dependent to independent to interdependent. Beautiful. So over the past four years, we've had over 200 leaders from over 200 companies globally go through the program and dozens of their teams. So we had everything from startups in Berlin with an average age of under 30 to global industry icons with over 100,000 people uh, globally uh, with the problem that they have three generations of team members amongst their employees speaking three kinds of languages, not just different language, but even the same language, completely different understanding of the same words. And they did not understand each other anymore. So everything from a startup to a scale-up to a highly established company who's been around over 150 uh, years, we've pretty much had it all. And the fascinating thing is what connects them all. Every single one changed uh, the conversation in the company, the way to collaborate with one another, the speed of innovation, the ability to handle complexities, the ability to do conflict management. And most important, what we always found is breaking up the silo problem. And how do you typically find those leaders and companies or they find you? We're very active going to the companies and introducing ourselves. So we're very actively going out there. And there's a lot of word of mouth now. What used to be, especially before the pandemic, kind of a niche thing, conscious leadership, empathetic leadership, or transformational leadership is kind of a new thing, but you, you left it up to HR to make sense of it. Now it has become a C-suite issue. Even CFOs have understood after seeing the, the newest studies that 
only purposefully run companies. Companies that have a solid trust base and, a, and live their purpose can outperform the market. So standard leadership models are great for transactional reasons, but if you really want to form a high-performing team that is innovative, collaborative, and takes accountability on all, at all levels, that is where conscious leadership basically being the name of the game now. So Stefan, what would be your advice to leaders and maybe also specifically to people in the finance sector? Many of them might listen right now. In the finance sector, I have a very clear opinion, but not only finance sector, basically to every CFO who, and usually CFO, I explicitly say that because CFOs are the ones that most of them I got to know. And I, I mean, from my investor times, I've been in m and I've been in restructuring and the belief to run companies through Excel spreadsheets has never worked. It definitely is not working. And every study shows that without trust and purpose, you cannot have a successful organization. Maybe short term, you can always optimize cash flow. That's never a problem. Also, in any restructuring scenario, just to short term clean up the balance sheet, that's craftsmanship. But the art of running a company or investing is the long term. And that's where the human parts come in. And it all starts with trust. Without trust, there is no such thing as a functioning organization. And trust and purpose are twins. And in order to build trust and be able to align the individual purpose with the mission of the company, that's where the next level of leadership comes in. The non-transactional leadership, the, the transformational conscious leadership. Actually, I'm now at the belief it's the difference between just being a good or even an excellent manager and actually a real leader. So when I look at the literally every study is um, one in Google's Our Soul project wasn't the first to find that, surprise, the number one reason for high-performing teams is the ones that trust one another and trust the company that they're in, independent of how many Harvard MBAs and PhDs they have. And purposeful companies and the ones meaning that they really live it top-down, they're the ones that beat the market by 42% consecutively. And the ones that are just KPI-driven may have short-term cash flow gains, but are underperforming the market over a period of five years by 40%. So there's an 80% difference. And study after study shows that. So if I go back to my investment world, I literally only invest in companies that can show that they have a system to measure, to implement and measure trust and purpose. I completely agree with you, Stefan. I think that is uh, fundamental. And I think it's interesting how things have changed as well and how now people are much more concerned about finding true purpose in their work and how the worst thing a leader can do is to try to greenwash and tell externally what they're doing because the employees just become so disgruntled when they see that this is not really the true purpose and, uh, and they lose the trust in the leadership and the organization. And then you have the 7% walking out of the door and you don't even notice. And there's a reason why I'm saying 7%. There is actually a systematic to it. And I, interestingly, I learned that already 25 years ago when, as a investment banker slash corporate lawyer. I had a client, usually 70% of M&A deals actually never work. Some of them may be disguised in the bellish, but basically they don't fulfill the And I had a client who had a 90% plus success rate. And I wondered, well, what do you do different? Do you have better due diligence? And he said, ah, due diligence. That's for the principals to decide if they want to do the deal. When they decide, I go in with my former PhDs and their students. And it turns out he was not a lawyer. He was not a, an economist. He was a former professor of psychology from LMU, uh, Munich University Alma Mater in Colombia. And he said, I'm finding my 7% on 
what do you mean by 7%? Because that it's always 7% that are, those are the ones that come to the office every day, not because we give them a paycheck, because they find an alignment between their personal purpose and the mission of the company. Even if they can't articulate it, they just feel it. And those are the ones that are usually pretty alone. And I find them, we'll, we'll interview both companies, we'll find them, we'll group them, we'll bring them together, we give them, and we'll build literally a tribe around them. We'll protect them, especially from the corporate narcissists. They are the true enemy of the 7%. They usually get the, the bonuses and they, they take the ideas, but they were not the inventor. And just coincidentally, I think it was McKinsey who about a year ago came up with a huge study saying, how many people does it take for any transformation, be it digital crisis? And lo and behold, it takes 7% at a minimum. If you run below the 7%, then your chances of having a successful transformation goes down to zero. So let's get into a more of a helicopter perspective, if possible. Stefan, what does the world need most right now? I truly believe it needs a different operating system, which is what you could call expanding consciousness. And thereby understanding that this is not just an esoteric uh, term that happens at the end of a yoga class, this has a huge bottom line effect to any organization or society as a whole. And interestingly, no matter in which organization we go, um, you always find almost at least three layers of language. And the next generation, the ones that uh, we also sometimes mock as, well, they don't know how to work anymore, yada, yada. I mean, I'm the generation of my kids, but holy... Oh, they really know what it takes and they speak a different language and they know precisely what it means to look at things with a different conscience. It's being more inclusive. It's being seeing with a wider lens, being more differentiated, being more in transformational in both thinking and both your cognitive and your emotional intelligence, being able to integrate cognitive, empathetic intelligence and willing to go to the third level to a collective wisdom intelligence, which is nothing but a coherence of a group, which we, interestingly, we all take for granted when we go into a symphonic orchestra and we see Beethoven's line played by 60 musicians. They have absolute coherence with one another. They do not read cognitively every note and then ask the conductor, hey, should I go softer or harder on this? No. They are in flow with one another. They go with exactly that 0.4% timeline that is that time between impulse and reaction. In the military, Navy SEALs, the reason why they are so good as a group, not because the individual soldiers are so good, because they are so good as a group, and they have, by the way, exactly that 0.4% advantage, which is also one of the reasons why one of the partners in the Argonauts is a former Navy SEAL commander, and he's bringing that, that training knowledge uh, to the organization. Stefan, do you have any role models, anyone you're looking up to, you feel have gotten there as a leader? You know, it's of course the usual. I mean, since I'm a lawyer by background, Nelson Mandela was a lawyer by background, I would always, always name them. Absolutely fascinating. And I know I would have not had the slightest chance to survive that ordeal. I seriously doubt I would have gone more than a than, than year what he did for, what was it, 27 years. And then come out of it and uh, basically make sure that this whole country doesn't blow up in a civil war. It was amazing. And by the way, what did he do? He implemented Precisely what we're doing with the Organizer Trust Circle, he implemented with Desmond Tutu the roundtables and have different conversations, not go transactionally with blaming and attacking, but trying to find an empathetic third space 
So Rainer and Stefan, what do you want the main takeaway to be for the people listening to this episode? Believe in the language of the heart and to be truly trusting the playfulness that we all had when we were kids. Because from that space of playfulness, we, we go at anybody, no matter age, financial background, balance, whatever, and just can go into, into a playing mode. And that playing mode allows us to go to the higher levels of human consciousness, of human needs. And that interestingly also correlates, and those, that data is not old, it's, that's known for five to eight years. Human needs correlate with our higher neuroreceptors. So basically going from oxytocin to endorphins, and they happen in playfulness. They happen when we play with one another, and hence we see it in sports, we see it in the military, or musicians, symphonic orchestra, jazz, players, how they go into a different level of flow communication. Every human can do this. Every human can go beyond the fear-based, deficiency-based transactional thinking of reactive, the all-about-me space. Everybody can go back into the playfulness. And when that happens with one another, yes, it's outside of the comfort zone, but that is usually where magic happens. And for me, one of the, the key takeaways is one, you know, we have to move consciously from the I to the we and utilize the collective uh, wisdom uh, and collective intelligence that that gives us, whether that's in your own organization or whether that's in the local community or on a higher level. So uh, I think if we were able to do that, we would solve a lot of the problems we, uh, we are facing today. So thank you so much, both of you, for um, sharing. This was a great, very valuable conversation. Thank you so much. This is Summa and Friends, the show that inspires and guides you on how we together can create a wiser future. Listen to unique leaders and experts exploring the challenges we are facing and revealing their stories about the solutions and how to get there. Episodes are released bi-weekly on your favorite podcast platform. And the week after, we release an in-depth blog article to help you capture the core ideas from the dialogues and how you can help move things forward. Summa and Friends is a podcast for people with the courage to care for a wiser future. To find out more, you will find links and show notes on summaequity.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the show. We hope it has inspired you to reflect on what you can do to contribute. And to make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. I'm Vesna Luca, and you've been listening to Summa and Friends. And until next time, live with purpose and be the change you want to see. Mm-hmm.